Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, this, uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing in our study of Mark's Gospel. So if you can please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. And uh, as you're doing so, let's just uh, recap where we come to as we look at chapter 4. Because here in chapter 4 is uh, an incredible and uh, important turning point in Jesus' ministry. So he'd been openly preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God, but he had met a great deal of resistance. Uh, The religious leaders uh, were actively trying to discredit his ministry by saying that he did his work by the power of Beelzebul, that is, by the power of the devil himself. His own family refused to believe his words, thinking that he was out of his mind And then the crowds in general were only coming to him for what they could get for themselves. Yet there were also people who displayed genuine faith. Aside from the twelve, there were others who were considered disciples. They were those who sat at Jesus' feet, submitting to his word and showing genuine affection to the Lord. And this is the environment that we find at the beginning of Mark chapter 4, And it's here that Jesus begins teaching the crowds in parables. He preaches the truths of the kingdom through short analogies or or short stories. And he speaks a number of these parables to the crowds from a boat this particular day. If we look through Mark 4, we see that it begins with the parable of the soils. And in that, Jesus illustrates the various responses to him at that time. Some people were like the hard soil in their outright rejection of him. Others were like the rocky or thorny soil in that they seemed to respond, but there was no real fruit produced, and so there was no real faith. Yet others were like the seed planted in good soil. They heard the gospel of the kingdom, they responded, and they produced lasting fruit. Only those in this last group were genuine believers. Only those of that group belonged to the spiritual family of Christ. And it's no different today, is it? We see these various responses everywhere we look to Christ. But then we see those who sit at Christ's feet humbly submitting to him and his word. In Mark 4 verses 11 to 12, Mark records how at some point later, not on that, uh, that moment that he was preaching to the crowds from the boat, but at some point later, Jesus' disciples came to him to ask about the parables, to ask him firstly about their meaning, but also about the reason that he had started teaching in this way. And this is what he said to them, Mark, 11, Mark 4 verses 11 to 12. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. You see, the parables had the effect of sifting the faithful from the false. To those in whom the Spirit of God had worked, the parables would draw them closer to Jesus and grow them deeper in their understanding of the kingdom and their love for Christ, the King. But to those whose hearts remain cold and uncultivated, the parables were a sign of judgment 
and they became a stumbling block for their nominal ascent to Jesus. The parable of the lamp that Jesus told that day matched the explanation that Jesus gave to his disciples later. See, no one lights a lamp only to cover it over. But that's exactly what Jesus seemed to be doing by teaching in parables. Yet there was purpose in what he was doing. He obscured the truth so that only those in whom the Spirit of God was at work would respond and turn to him. He knew that his sheep would be enabled to hear his voice. The parable of the measure was then a a challenge to the crowd to properly respond to the parables. You see, while Scripture teaches that salvation is the work of God alone, that does not deny that people are responsible for their choices. And so Jesus did not hold back in calling the people to hear what he was saying, to listen and to respond to him in faith. Well, this morning, we're going to finish working through Jesus' teaching from the boat that day. And in the last two parables that Mark records, Jesus focuses in on kingdom matters to explain more about the nature of the kingdom of God. So in Mark 4, this is what we read in verses 26 to 34. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. While Jesus mentioned the phrase, the kingdom of God, in that explanation he gave later to his disciples that we read in verse 11, this right here in these two parables is the first mention of the kingdom of God to the crowd that day from the boat. But this should not strike us as coming out of nowhere. You see, the kingdom of God dominated Jesus' teaching. He has been preaching about it since the commencement of his Galilean ministry. If we remember back to Mark chapter 1, we read in verses 14 to 15, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And we should recognize that this is what the teaching of Jesus in the rest of this chapter refers to. The seed that was sown in the parable of the soils is the word, and that word is the gospel of the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? 
We've addressed this a number of times as it's arisen in the text of Mark's Gospel, but it bears going over again. The Australian theologian Graham Goldsworthy summarised the Kingdom of God as being God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. God's people, God's place under God's rule and blessing. And of course, God's reign, his rule is centred in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus declared the kingdom of God is at hand, he meant in himself. George Eldon Ladd, another uh, New Testament scholar, spelled the kingdom of God out further. He defined it as this. The kingdom of God is the sovereign rule of God manifested in the person and work of Christ, creating a people over whom he reigns and issuing in a realm or realms in which the power of his reign is realised. That's a very clear statement, but it's a bit of a mouthful to hear uh, sitting there this morning. So let's just break that down. The kingdom of God is God's sovereign reign. Just a couple of Bible verses. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 145, verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So the kingdom of God is primarily about God's dominion over the domain Reign, his reign, his sovereign reign rather than the realm. This reign is truly revealed in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's by God's power that he establishes a people for himself. But we know that a reign is exercised within a realm, isn't it? Under the old covenant, the people of God were situated in the land of Israel. But under the new covenant, God's people are not limited by national borders. Christians are found and made in all parts of the world. Yet while believers now live in a world where they interact with non-believers, when the new heavens and new earth are established in the future, it will only be a place where God's people dwell. And we look forward to that final day when we step foot into eternal perfection. So throughout the different stages of history, the the place in which God's people dwell varies. What remains, however, is God's sovereign rule. And this truly is at the heart of the kingdom of God. It speaks of God's sovereign saving rule. And this is centred on Jesus Christ. One thing commonly heard in Christian circles is the importance of building the kingdom or helping the kingdom grow. Have you um, heard that before? Perhaps you've said it yourself. I know I've said it uh, in the past. But while we can acknowledge those statements reflect a heartfelt desire to serve the Lord, we kind of need to stop and ask ourselves if that's what we're actually called to do. Are Christians involved in growing the kingdom? Does God's kingdom actually grow? Well, let's have a think about that for a moment just by asking a few questions. And they're not complicated. 
Is God sovereign? Yes. Now, as one writer puts it, sovereignty can be defined as having supreme authority, control and power over all that has happened, is happening and will happen in the future, in all times, across all history. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. Psalm 115 verse 3 puts it straightforwardly. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. If God is already free to do all that he pleases, then he could not be more sovereign than he already is now. Okay, what about Christ? Is he sovereign? Yes. Before the incarnation, God the Son shared the same attribute of sovereignty as God the Father. But in Matthew 28, as God incarnate, now truly God and truly man, Jesus declares that he has received all authority. He says in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Is he short of any authority? No, he has all authority in all places. Now, if he has been given all authority, then he could not be more sovereign than he already is now. So if the kingdom of God refers to his sovereign redemptive reign, and this sovereignty is already as sovereign as it gets, then it just doesn't make sense for us to speak about the kingdom of God growing. can't grow anymore. He's already sovereign. An illustration might help us understand this further. In their book, What is the Mission of the Church? Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert, they write the following. To borrow a tired cliche, the kingdom is what it is. It does not expand, it does not increase, it does not grow, but the kingdom can break in more and more. Think of it like the sun. When the clouds part on a cloudy day, we don't say the sun has grown. We say the sun has broken through. Our view of the sun has changed or obstacles have been removed, but we have not changed the sun. The sun does not depend on us. We do not bring the sun or act upon it. The sun can appear. Its warmth can be felt or stifled, but the sun does not grow. Now, they immediately acknowledge the limitation of that illustration, pointing out they're not making a scientific argument there. But they're simply pointing out that our experience of the sun does not mean that the sun has grown, but that its effects have been felt. That's what happens with the kingdom of God. God's sovereign reign does not grow when he brings people into the kingdom. He was sovereign before and he's sovereign after. But when people are saved, they are graciously brought to acknowledge God's existing reign. We could think also of Jesus' words when he stood before Pilate. John 18, we read, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world kingdom jesus speaks of is already complete it doesn't grow but it is revealed that's very important to understand as we come to our passages for today in mark chapter 4 
Jesus speaks about kingdom matters. And he does so by telling two parables that use the growth of seed to convey truth about the kingdom of God. But if it's not about the growth of the kingdom, then what is the truth he is conveying? There are a couple of interpretive issues we need to be aware of in understanding these parables. You see, their content is so similar to that of the parable of the soils that if we're not careful, we'll interpret them all in the same manner without noticing some important differences. The first thing to be aware of is that in the parable of the soils, Jesus isn't making a comparison, whereas that's exactly what he's doing in these later two parables. So, back in verses 2 and 3, we read, And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. But now look at verse 26. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. The same is true for verse 30. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? So he's making a comparison. The second thing we need to be aware of is in the parable of the soils, we learn from Jesus' explanation that all the elements in the parable mean something specific. So the sower is the preacher, the seed is the word, the soils are the different responses to Jesus. We know that because Jesus told us that. But when we come to these later two parables, we're given no explanation that the different elements in these parables refer to certain things. However, given what we've just seen about them being comparisons, I don't think we are to take each element as referring to something specific at all. Instead, I think we are to take the meaning of the parable as a whole and then try to figure out how that compares to the nature of the kingdom of God. So, for instance, in the parable of the seed growing, I don't think we should be trying to identify who the man is or what the seed is or what the stages of the blade, the ear, the full grain represent. Rather, I think we should be trying to ascertain what that description is telling us as a whole and then see what that tells us about the nature of the kingdom of God. Well, with those things in mind, let's approach these parables. And the first parable is unique to Mark's gospel. Only Mark records Jesus telling it to the crowd that day. And I want to suggest that in this first parable, Jesus is describing how God reveals his sovereign reign. How God reveals his sovereign reign. And I'll address this parable under the heading, The Activity of the Kingdom. Because I think Jesus is telling us that the bringing in of God's sovereign reign is God's business. Let's read it again. Verses 26 to 29. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has 
come. So this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what God's sovereign, saving reign is like. So what is it like? Well, in the illustration, who was responsible for bringing the seed to harvest? Was it the man? No. He might have scattered the seed, but he doesn't do anything until after the harvest has come. Once he's scattered the seed, he goes home and sleeps. In the meantime, the seed sprouts of its own accord. In fact, it's not simply that the man plays no part in the development of seed. He doesn't even know how it happens. In our modern scientific minds, we might scoff at this. Yet while we might have a greater understanding of the composition of a seed, we're still left to wonder in amazement as to how all of this life is contained in a tiny little object. Moreover, we can recognise that that Jesus has not mentioned any of the work a farmer does. But remember, it wasn't that Jesus was somehow unaware of this because he was speaking into a far more agrarian culture than what we live in today. And yet at the same time, even farmers today recognise their limitations. From the perspective of a farmer, the harvest is never a guarantee. It's dependent upon many things outside of their control. I mean, just consider how long we've been praying for rain in this area. The point of the illustration is to show that man has no control over the growth of a seed. It's up to the sovereign work of God. And if we take that as a comparison to the kingdom of God, we understand that the manifestation of God's sovereign reign is his business as well. Jesus is teaching us about the activity of the kingdom. That is the activity of God's sovereign reign. He will reveal his rule and he alone. That's an important lesson given the context of Mark chapter 4. It drives home the reason for why there have been various responses to Jesus. Why have some responded in faith, whereas many others haven't? The answer lies in the sovereign activity of God. Sinners are held accountable for their response. I mean, that's made clear by the amount of times Jesus calls the people to hear in this chapter. But we are humbled by the sovereignty of God. In verse 11, Jesus explained to his disciples, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. It's God's work. It's a gift. They've been enabled by divine grace to believe the truths of the kingdom, to have affection for those truths, to love those truths, and most especially to love Jesus, the one in whom God's kingdom reign and rule are manifested to this world. By the gracious work of God, they've been made into good soil, which produces lasting fruit. Look at verse 25, which we studied last week. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. If you must have a knowledge of God's truth to begin with, how can you gain more truth? Well, the answer is you can't. You can't do that by yourself. It's got to come from outside of you. Sinners can only gain an understanding of God's truth in the first place by the sovereign grace of God. 
And this is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus declared to Nicodemus, that famous passage in John chapter 3. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The revealing of God's sovereign rule is his work. The purpose of the parable shows this to be true. For those in whom God's Spirit is at work, the parables will be a means of growth. But for those whose hearts remain cold to Christ, the parables will be a stumbling block. This particular parable also helps keep us focused in the proclamation of the gospel. You know, we may be tempted to prop up the gospel, to try and sell it better. But to do so is to be ashamed of the gospel, forgetting that it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If we think we need to do something else to help promote the gospel other than preaching the gospel then we're ashamed of the power of the gospel as john MacArthur, well-known pastor and theologian reminds us in his commentary on mark human ingenuity emotional manipulation man-centered techniques market-driven strategies cannot create new life in the heart of a sinner regeneration is only by the spirit of God. And so we faithfully proclaim the gospel to all with the knowledge that God's Spirit will enable that truth to take root and grow where He sovereignly determines. Our job is to preach the foolish message of the cross. God's job is to take that message and grow it in the hearts of His people. So this first parable places the responsibility of revealing God's sovereign reign squarely upon God. However, given the lack of response to Jesus at that time, the question that comes next is whether he will be able to bring this revelation to completion. And so Jesus moves from speaking about the the activity of the kingdom to the assurance of the kingdom. In telling the parable of the mustard seed, he's giving assurance that God will do what he says he will do. Now, before we look at the detail of this passage, it's important to deal with two aspects relating to the inerrancy of Scripture. The doctrine that says Scripture is God's word, and as a result, it does not contain error. The first issue relates to the wording of the whole passage. This... uh, parable was recorded in the gospel of mark and luke and matthew now luke records it at a later stage in jesus ministry which highlights that jesus didn't tell his parables just once and uh, so that would account for any differences in the wording between luke's account and the others but mark and matthew record the same moment jesus told this parable and so what do we do with any of the, the differences in the words they record 
And I bring this up because last week when we looked at the parable of the lamp and the measure, Mark and Luke had recorded words of Jesus that seemed to contradict one another, uh, for which we explained how there was no contradiction. Yet uh, in the parable of the mustard seed, Mark and Matthew have recorded Jesus' words, but this time the point they make is exactly the same, but the phrasing is slightly different. Now, is that a problem for the doctrine of inerrancy? The answer to that is no. It simply shows that the Spirit worked through the styles and personalities of two different men, but they conveyed the truth of what Jesus said. You get the point of what Jesus was saying from both writers, even if it's phrased slightly differently. So there's no error here. There's absolutely no problem at all. The only aspect where there is a difference is that Matthew typically refers to the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God. But this is because he's writing predominantly to a Jewish audience uh, who refrain from speaking the name of God. But the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are synonymous, mean the same thing. The second issue concerning inerrancy relates to Jesus' comment about the mustard seed being the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Now, people have actually abandoned the doctrine of inerrancy because of this verse. Uh, The late great theologian R.C. Sproul uh, told of one New Testament professor in the 1980s who used to teach his students that botanists have since discovered seeds smaller than a mustard seed, and so the Bible is in error. Doctrinary inerrancy must go because of this little seed. But there's no error here. I mean, in the first century, the mustard seed was the smallest seed used by the Israelites in agriculture. And because of this, everyone understood the mustard seed as being proverbial for an expression of something extraordinarily small. Everyone knew what Jesus was talking about at that point. For instance, in Matthew 17, Jesus used the parable, sorry, the, uh, the, the smallness of a mustard seed for another one of his teachings when he said to his disciples, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Everyone understood what Jesus was talking about when he spoke of the smallness of a mustard seed. With that being said, let's now look at Jesus' words of assurance. So verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for? Remember again, this is a comparison. We don't have to figure out each or what each thing in the parable represents. We simply need to ascertain the overall point. And when we've done that, we'll have insight into the nature of the kingdom. So what's God's sovereign saving reign like? Verses 31 to 32. It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So what is the point of Jesus' illustration? Just as the mustard seed looks insignificant to begin with, but grows to be bigger than the other plants in the garden, so it is with the kingdom of God. To many people, Jesus, he was just the carpenter's son. And the twelve who followed him closest were an odd mixture with 
nothing particularly special about any of them. And not to mention the kind of people they were associated with. To the Jews in the first century, this was not what they envisioned when God promised that his kingdom would break into this world. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 2, we read about the dream Daniel interpreted for the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a great image of a man with a, a head made of gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet of iron and clay. And by the Spirit of God, Daniel was able to interpret these as referring to different kingdoms that would follow the kingdom of Babylon. But there was one more aspect to the dream. Nebuchadnezzar also saw a stone cut out by no human hand that smashed the image to pieces and then became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. In Daniel 2 verse 44, Daniel explained what this stone refers to and he said this, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. This victorious kingdom is what the Jews were expecting and it looked nothing like what Jesus was presenting. But of course they were expecting that because they were unable to piece together all the elements of the Old Testament in which, for instance, the promised Davidic king of Isaiah 11 was also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The Jews did not understand that suffering must come before victory. And that victory over God's enemies came after victory over sin. The parable of the mustard seed, Jesus is explaining that God's victorious reign will be made manifest to the whole world. And it serves then as a warning. The only kingdom that will stand forever is God's. And the only way to be part of God's kingdom is to submit to the king, to submit to Christ. That's the warning inherent in this parable. Yet there is also great encouragement for believers you see, despite the way things look now, despite the many man-made kingdoms that stake their claim upon this world, they will all come to nothing. For God is reigning now, and this reign will be revealed fully in his sovereign timing. So there's warning, but there's also encouragement. Well, this brings us to the last two verses of this section. Here is not another parable from Jesus, but a word of summary from Mark. But it's nevertheless connected to what we've been looking at, particularly today, moreover in the previous few weeks that we've spent on this chapter. In these two sentences, Mark gives evidence that God's sovereign reign was being revealed at that time, and evidence that we continue to see today. And we'll address these verses under the final heading, the authentication of the kingdom. So Mark states in verses 33 to 34, With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, 
he explained everything. Now it's clear from verse 33 that what Mark records in chapter 4 has not been all of the parables that Jesus spoke that day. In Matthew 13, other parables are recorded. And perhaps Matthew did not even record all that Jesus said that day either. But what Mark has recorded teaches us a great deal about the nature of the kingdom. Now looking again at verse 33, we immediately need to ask the question, who is them whom Jesus spoke the word to? Is it the crowd or is it the disciples? Well, verse 34 clears that up when Mark distinguishes between the them and the disciples. So it's most natural to see them as referring to the wider crowd. But what does it mean then that Jesus spoke to the crowd as they were able to hear it? Well, it seems we should understand the crowd as including everyone who was listening to Jesus speak from the boat that day. Within the crowd, there were those whose hearts were cold to Jesus, which meant they had no ability to hear, to truly hear the word. And yet within the crowd, there were also the disciples, not simply the 12, but others as well, who had graciously received the ability to hear the truth. What set the disciples apart from the crowd was their desire to come to Jesus privately and ask him to give them greater understanding. The fact that people did come to Jesus is evidence that the Spirit of God was at work. When Jesus taught in parables that day, everyone was listening to the same thing, but not everyone heard the same way. Again, we say that those in whom the Spirit of God was at work, to them the parables were a means of growing in their knowledge and love of Christ. But for those whose hearts remained cold to Jesus, the parables were a means of judgment. The difference is the sovereign action of God, an action authenticated by the ones who came to sit at Jesus' feet and to humbly ask him to teach them further. The assurance that God's sovereign reign will be completely revealed one day is the continued evidence we see of people coming to Christ 2,000 years after he walked upon the earth. The Spirit is still sovereignly working to bring his people to faith. Now there is a difference, however, to what was experienced on the beach that day and to our experience today. When Jesus walked the earth, his disciples could come to physically speak with him. We don't have that today. No one has since Christ's ascension to the right hand of the Father in heaven. But what we do have is what Christ promised. That's what we remember today, with it being Pentecost. We remember the pouring out of the Holy Spirit to indwell the lives of God's people. That's what made the new covenant new, or one of the aspects of the newness of the new covenant, that all of God's people would have the Spirit of God indwelling them. Christ promised to send another advocate, and in the gift of the Holy Spirit, we have just that. In 1 John chapter 2, the apostle reminds believers of this precious blessing. 1 John 2 verse 20, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. 
then in verse 27, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. There is a lot of talk around these days of certain teachers having a special anointing from God that sets them apart from the others. But that's utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. You see, as a result of Pentecost, all believers have been indwelt by the Spirit of God. That's what the anointing refers to, the indwelling Holy Spirit. And as a result, the Spirit illuminates believers' hearts and minds to understand the wonderful truths of God that the same Spirit ensured were written down through every word of Scripture. Now, John was not denying the importance of teachers. I mean, he was writing to teach them. And putting together today's sermon, as with every sermon, I've poured over many different resources from teachers. John's not denying the need to work hard at understanding Scripture or the need for teachers, not at all. His point, though, is that you can have all the brains in the world, but if you do not have the Spirit of God at work within you, you have not got a single hope of truly understanding the things of God. Whereas those in whom the Spirit indwells, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, we have the mind of Christ. Now, that's not a boast of our greatness. It's a boast of God's graciousness. Christ dwells within every believer now through the presence of the Holy Spirit. That he continues to bring about his saving work is testimony to the fact that God's sovereign reign is breaking into this world and will be made manifest in full at his appointed time. As we've looked at these kingdom matters that Jesus addresses, we recognise that they are extraordinarily weighty and profound matters. But when thinking about God's sovereignty, we should not expect anything less. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ's teaching in these parables today. We thank you for the reminder of your sovereignty that you will bring your reign into this world to reveal who you are as the sovereign creator and sustainer of this creation of yours. Father, we thank you that while you call us to be faithful to proclaim the word, we thank you that it is your sovereign activity that allows that word to take root in people's hearts and allows them to turn away from their sin and turn to Christ. Father, we thank you for the assurance in these passages that remind us that you will bring things to a completion, but in your perfect timing. And Father, as, as I pray now and as, as we look out in this congregation, we see evidence that you are bringing your kingdom into this world. With these hearts here today who are willingly sitting to learn about your word. Father, we thank you for that. 
And we thank you that it's by your grace alone that we stand here today. Father, help us as we, in our contemplation of who you are as the sovereign one, may our hearts be stirred. May we never seek to try and box you in, but may we sit in humble adoration and reverence as to who you are. We thank you in your son's name. Amen.